Let's turn in the scriptures to Psalm 145. This is the fourth and final sermon in our brief series here at the end of winter on Psalms of creation. And if these few weeks studying these Psalms of creation have sparked something in you, let me say these have been helpful. These have been eye-opening. Let me encourage you, as spring begins, to do some of your own study in Psalms of creation that we did not get to study. There are many of them. Uh, some of the ones that we did not study this year in our, in our series include like Psalm 8, Psalm 33, Psalm 65, there's Psalm 104, Psalm 148. These are psalms of creation that we could have approached, but we did not. We just limited it to four. Today, we're in Psalm 145. It was penned about 3,000 years ago by King David. He reigned in Jerusalem for about 40 years near the height of Israel's strength, of Israel's international strength in the ancient world. But David was not only a politician, he was also a poet and a prolific poet. Uh, Ancient records say that he may have composed as many as 4,000 poems. We don't know. But uh, the scriptures include at least 75 that are attributed to him. 75 of the songs in the Bible are attributed to King David. And the psalm we study today, Psalm 145, is attributed to him as well. This psalm focuses on God's works. And those works, of course, include creation. The the term works, which appears several times in the song, is actually the core of the word handiwork in Psalm 19.1, that the skies are proclaiming his handiwork. Creation is one of the evidences that there is a God. Creation is proclaiming how wonderful God's work is. Now, all of God's work should rise up and bless him. And that's what Psalm 145 is about. A song of praise of David. I start in verse 1. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I'll declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. That word, pour forth refers to something that can't be contained, something that can't be kept silent. Celebration over over God's works is it's it's been said it's like the bubbling of a fountain or the shaking of a soda can. Eventually it's gonna burst. They'll burst forth with the fame of your abundant goodness. Verse eight the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy 
is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They'll speak of the glory of your kingdom. They'll tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord's faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. That word kind is rich. Alec Motier translates it in his translation of the Psalms as the Lord is changelessly loving in all his works. Changelessly loving in all his works. Verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him. That's what the word preserves means. He watches over all who love him. But all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Can we pray one more time? I want to lead us. Father, I now pray that you would help me in explaining this psalm. You reveal yourself here to us. Help me to teach about you in a way that is clear, in a way that's compelling, and in a way that, that is constructive, that changes our lives, that connects with us where we're at today. God, I pray that you would show us through your word, through our time in it right now, how awesome you are. I pray that it would thrill us I pray it would affect our lives. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us not only to see your glory, but also to trust your greatness and your goodness. Lord, may this be the chief way you change us by helping us to trust what we read here because you've revealed yourself here. And I pray that one of the things that we'd be wowed over is the humility of Jesus the great king who gave himself up. Your greatness and your goodness cannot be separated, Lord. You are great in your goodness and you are good in your greatness. Lord, open our eyes to your glory. On Jesus' authority, I pray. Amen. Amen. Psalm 145 is a psalm that David stresses the Lord's limitless greatness. The Lord's limitless greatness compels us to continual, endless exploration, explanation, and exaltation. I want to unpack that, but just take a minute to chew on that. The Lord's limitless greatness compels us to continual and endless exploration, explanation, and exaltation. 
you could come up with more adjectives to describe what his, uh, um, what, what our exploration and explanation and, and exaltation should be, continual, endless. There are several others in the psalm. And you could even come up with more terms like meditation and celebration and several others that I think kind of group under these. But the psalm is just explosive with saying, when you are looking at a limitless God, how can you not every day and forever explore the wonders of his works? Try to explain to others how great he is and praise him yourself. So I just want to explain this a bit. I want to take that first statement, the Lord's limitless greatness, and say the psalm emphasizes that God's works are unsearchable. You see it especially there in verse 3. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. That term unsearchable refers to something that cannot be exhaustively explored. One translation puts it like this. His greatness is beyond discovery. You can know some things that are true about it, but you can never know everything about it. It's limitless. In all we know about God, we've hardly scratched the surface. That's what verse 3 confesses. And isn't every subject of learning like that? Right? The more we explore, the more we realize there is to be explored. That's true of hard sciences like astronomy. The more you know, the more you say, we have hardly scratched the surface. Oceanography, neurology, meteorology, embryology, mathematics, they seem infinite. And it's true of soft sciences, like history. You can be a PhD in a certain segment of human history, and you realize that you've barely scratched the surface or subjects like psychology, sociology, musicology, archaeology. The more you keep digging, in some cases literally, the more you realize there is to be digged. Doug? I need to go back to English. (laughs) The more we know, the more we realize we don't know. Right? It's because the God who created us is unsearchably great. Then the second half, his works are worth exploring, explaining, and exalting, right? The center of the psalm, especially verses 4 through 7, they emphasize how God's works are worth meditating on or contemplating. That's verse 5. And then they're worth explaining to others, one generation, talking about them to another generation, But the opening and closing of the song in the first segment, verses 1 through 3, it's just, I'm going to praise you, God, every day forever. And the psalm ends the same way. I'm going to exalt you, God, because you're so great. That's where I get this concept of just exalting God for his great works. Exploring them, thinking about them, explaining them, talking about them, communicating them. Again, this song is just a celebration of the limitless greatness of God. 
The remainder of our time, I don't plan to really work verse by verse through the psalm. Instead, I just want to look at each section, especially as you see it in the ESV. You have an introductory section in the first three verses and a concluding section in the last verse. And in between, you have four. Those sections, generally speaking, emphasize God's greatness and then God's goodness and then God's greatness and then God's goodness. So you have intro, greatness, goodness, greatness, goodness, conclusion. And I'm just going to pull one big application from each of these major sections of the psalm, uh, an application that I think is kind of on the surface for our encouragement here at the end of winter. The first big application of Psalm 145 is you and I should commit to exalting God every day, deliberately, explicitly exalting God every day. This is the first stanza where David basically says, I'm going to continually bless the Lord for his unsearchable greatness. I'm going to continually extol or bless, praise the Lord for his greatness. We need to follow David's example. Are you committed every day to exalting the Lord? One of the ways you can do this is by beginning every day with prayer. Pray every morning you wake up the Lord's Prayer and you will begin with Father in heaven. May your name be exalted. Are you committed to everyday kind of praise? We should be. We ourselves are evidence of God's great works. We ourselves are evidence of his goodness. Every day we live and breathe. We are walking creations fearfully and wonderfully made and the fact that we are breathing proves that God is good to us we don't deserve one day of life he gives us we should praise him every day because of who we are and the fact that we're even living and breathing but even more the fact of God's greatness should lead us to praise him I like how Stuart Burgess he's a an engineer who's worked on several NASA projects, he just puts it like this. He says, if you could count stars at the rate of one million stars every second, you would still be counting in a million years. Do you think that a God who could make that many stars in one day could ever get boring? Do you think that a God who could make that many stars in one day could ever be grasped completely? Do you think that the God who could do that in one day might have reasons for doing things in our lives that we might not understand? I think that's reasonable. Every day we should praise the Lord. And do you know what? This should never get boring. It can never get boring. If we do it rightly, if we just keep exploring God, maybe paragraph after paragraph in the Bible, or maybe we just take one subject of study per year, and we say, this year I'm going to dabble in neurology, and next year I think I'll dabble in oceanography, and the next year I'll dabble a little bit in musicology. I'm just going to try to learn. I was one of my uh, professors, Stuart Custer's, habit throughout life throughout his adult life every year he would just take a different subject of God's created world and he would explore it 
And out of it came his book, The Stars Speak. Just explore a little bit more of God's work. Do you think it it could ever get boring? This is one of the reasons that we know that life in God's presence for all eternity is never, ever going to get boring. Because God is limitless in his greatness. We could be exploring him for 10,000 years or 10 million years and barely scratch the surface. His greatness is limitless and we should commit to praising him every day. Now, I've spoken very boldly today, but I confess to you that I am probably the one in this congregation who needs point number one the most because I have let life get so rote Fulfilling my responsibilities, going through the motions, I can teach others about God and teach others to cast their cares on God and even cast the cares of others on God. And I can be very, very weak in doing it myself, praising God for myself, casting my cares on the Lord and delighting in God personally. I need point one, I think, more than anyone today day by day, committing myself to personal exaltation of the Lord for his limitless greatness. Second application. If you're a parent, explain God's works to the next generation. Again, I said after that introductory stanza, it seems that the stanzas alternate between emphasizing greatness and goodness. God's greatness, God's goodness, God's greatness, God's goodness, and then conclusion. This one emphasizes his greatness the awesome majesty of all he does. And David stresses just how appropriate it is for for one generation, you see this in verse 4, to talk to the next generation about God's works. How do you do this? How do you do this? Well, one way is to establish a time when you read the Bible and you sing praises to God as a family. In those times, especially when your kids are young, you might read Bible storybooks. You might read one-page devotionals. Those are great things to do. As your child gets older, you may read the Bible. In fact, I would say be sure to read the Bible in your home. Don't substitute other books about the Bible for the Bible itself. And be sure to read like Genesis and Exodus you're going to see in Genesis and Exodus the wondrous works of the Lord. Read through as a family Luke and Acts. You're going to see the awesome deeds of the Lord. Read through the Bible. In those times, share your testimony of how God has worked in your life with your children. Share about when you didn't know the Lord. Share about how God worked in you to bring you to the Lord. Share about how God has, through many dangers, toils, and snares, kept showing you grace as your shepherd. Talk about God's wondrous works in your life to your children. And then sing. Sing as a family. Sing simple, simple songs. There are certain songs that we as English speakers have in our heritage that get richer and weightier as the years go on. Songs like, I sing the mighty power of God, or holy, 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 man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a Savior. Sing simple songs as a family to exalt God. Teach 
your children. Teach the next generation about the wondrous works of the Lord. I'm going to go off on just a little tangent here and explore just one evidence of this that really impressed me. A few years ago, our teammate, the director of Frontline Missions International, Tim Kazee, published a book called Company of Heroes. I highly recommend it. I couldn't put it down. We have several copies of it out front. Um, Each of the 17 chapters focus on a few people, a few Christians, who are advancing the gospel in a certain part of the world. And what's really interesting, what's really personal is when in chapter 5 he talks about his dad. Tim Kazee talks about the life of his father, Carl Kazee. He was a man who served his country in the military, and then he also served Christ as a faithful follower for several decades. That chapter is titled, A Hero in the Battle of Life. And it begins February 28, 2013, when Tim gets a notification while he's in Turkey that, quote, hospice care has been called in for daddy. Tim says he immediately called home at the first opportunity, but the conversation was at that point one-sided because his father was too weak to talk. Tim was returning to Virginia that next week to be with his dad, and while he was traveling, his father passed away. About a week later, a day or two after the funeral, on March 9th, 2013, Tim walked into his father's garage, which was his workshop, and he journaled this. He said, today the shop is quiet. The air, it smells of steel and grease. It's a good smell. It smells like daddy's hands. A wrench lay on the workbench, right where he left it. Over the past year, with his heart wearing out and his vision and memory clouding, he slowly lost his grip on these tools until he had to let them go altogether. But while daddy's once strong hands were losing their hold on things, Christ's hold on him never did. His last day on this side, while slipping in and out of consciousness, he began to sing to himself some songs my brother and sister could not recognize, but there was one that was clear. It was amazing grace. That is deeply impressive. You just think about what you cling to in the last days of life. Of course, the day of death for many believers is not always this, this pleasant It was for Carl, and on that day, he sang Amazing Grace. And that is the most critical facet of what we can do for the next generation, is we can treasure the truth we confess to believe. Treasure it, treasure it, treasure it. I do not know what I will be on my last day. I may not be this coherent. I may not even have time to sing, but I pray that I'm treasuring truth. I pray that whatever strength I have, I'm gripping to the truth. You do not have to be a pastor with a religious education to explain God's works to the next generation. You can be a mechanic who smells like grease, who just knows how to sing and treasure amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. We've got 
to communicate God's greatness and grace to the next generation. And we do that foremost by our examples and also by actually talking about it. Third, affirm that God is always good, which is most clearly seen in his gift of Jesus. This is precisely what David does in verses 8 and 9. He affirms the goodness of God. The Lord is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's good to all. David models for us that whatever we are dealing with on any day, no matter what we're dealing with, however bad it may be, David affirms that God is good and he urges us to follow his example and affirm that God is good. You say, how can I do that? Well, it's helpful to remember that verse 8 is actually a quotation. If it's not there in your Bible or in one of the notes in your Bible, right next to verse 8, write Exodus 34, 6, and 7. This is the most quoted statement of Scripture in the Old Testament. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's a quotation of Exodus 34, 6 and 7. That passage says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty. That passage is from an event 500 years before David, when Moses was up on Mount Sinai. The Israelites, whom God had just graciously and powerfully rescued out of Egypt at the base of Mount Sinai, build an idol. They start to worship the idol in a massive sexual orgy. And God's judgment fell on people that day. And the Lord, when Moses is is asking him, God, are you going to keep going with us? Are you going to keep going with us? The Lord reveals himself like this, as gracious and merciful. But when you hear this self-revelation of God, this disclosure of himself, when God says, I'm gracious, I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love. I forgive sin, but I never clear the guilty. Every one of us should scratch our heads and say, whoa, 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 wait, wait. Is God contradicting himself? How in the world can he be someone who forgives sin, but never clears the guilty? And that question, that apparent contradiction, stands for 1,500 years until Jesus is on the cross. It is the only way that our just God, who will never let sin go, can let sin go justly. It's if you will trust Jesus. So I come back to David's main point. Affirm that God is good. And I say, when you look at the cross, you can affirm that God is good. He gave himself in love for us so that if we would flee to Jesus, we, the guilty, could be cleared of our sin. When you look at the cross, you can affirm that God is good. And when you are feeling like God may not be good, look at 
the cross and affirm the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Affirm the goodness of God. Fourth, thank God that he's on the throne. Thank God that he's reigning. This fourth stanza, verses 10 through 13, David refers to God's kingdom repeatedly. He refers to God's power, God's dominion. He's describing God's reign, God's sovereignty, the fact that he reigns over all. The scripture teaches that God rules over every event in human history in order to fulfill every promise he's made and bring all of creation to his intended end. God is ruling over every event of our lives personally and of every nation internationally so that every promise he's made will be fulfilled and all of creation comes to the end he's designed it for. He reigns. And the first verse says, thank him that he's on the throne. Thank him that he's king. Thank him that his kingdom rules over all. The last verse of this stanza says, his kingdom endures forever. It's eternal. It's invincible. Yesterday morning, I received an email from Mike Brunk in South Africa. Mike was with us in November, and he's been praying for me in a couple ways, and he shared with me a 15-minute interview that he thought would be personally encouraging. He said, why don't you uh, try to listen to this when you get a chance? It was titled, The Sovereignty of God in Psalm 145. I wrote Mike back, in the Lord's providence, I'm preaching Psalm 145 tomorrow. And he wrote back and said, no way, that's amazing. (laughs) The interview was with a Christian woman named Susan Heck. She's authored uh, several women's Bible studies, and uh, she serves as a Christian counselor. She spoke last year at the National ACBC Conference. In this past summer, in August, her husband Doug, husband of 46 years, passed away. And she was interviewed about two months after that happened. I'm just quoting from a certain portion of the interview that I listened to while I was running yesterday morning. She said, seven weeks ago, my husband went to heaven, and the Lord has used Psalm 145 to minister to me in various ways. I think of how the psalmist recalls God's goodness and his faithfulness. These things are true in Psalm 145. This isn't a made-up myth. This is God's inspired word. God's shown himself strong on my behalf. I'm so grateful I've sensed peace of God in ways I've never experienced before in my whole Christian life. Psalm 145, and she goes on to talk about the truth of God's sovereignty, that he reigns over all that happens. God has used Psalm 145 to minister to me greatly in these last few weeks. No matter what we are enduring, we should confess that God reigns. Things don't happen outside of his control, no matter what they seem to be. Things don't happen outside of a sovereign's control. And things don't happen outside of our good sovereign's control. Let's thank him that he's reigning. Fifth, know that the Lord is near the humble. This is the fifth 
stanza before the conclusion. Just want you to listen for the dominant emphasis. Verse 14, the Lord raises up all who are bowed down. That was verse 14. Verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him. The second half of verse 19, the Lord hears the cry and he saves those who fear him. Verse 20, the Lord watches over all who love him. One of Cedarville University's longtime Bible professors, Dan Estes, explains this stanza. He says, what David does is he puts side by side God's sovereignty and his sensitivity, his sympathy. The sovereign cares. The sovereign over all creation cares, and he especially cares for those who are broken. Are you broken in spirit? The sovereign doesn't kick you and say, when are you going to man up? He draws near you. He draws near you. He reveals himself to you. And maybe he does treat you a little bit like Job and says, do you remember I'm sovereign, you're not? He did it because he loved Job. He gave Job exactly what he needed. And he praised Job for his faithful endurance through trials. That's our God. He doesn't kick those who are bowed down. He doesn't turn his ear to those who are crying. He draws near. He saves. He watches over. Our sovereign is sensitive to those who are humble and those who submit. If you have never submitted yourself to God, I would urge you, bow down. If you have never cried out to him for salvation, saying, God, Jesus is my only hope of being rid from my guilt, cry out, call out to him right now. It's the only way that you'll be saved. It's the only way that you'll be reconciled to God. It's the only way that you'll not experience the last statement of verse 20, the wicked he destroys. If you have taken refuge in the Lord and you are broken right now, if you are humbled right now, if you are crying out right now to God for help and support, give me grace in my weakness, he's watching over you, he's near to you. God, help us believe it. Conclusion, it's point six. Never stop praying for the gospel's universal advance. Verse 21, David ends the song, not only saying, I'm going to keep praising you, Lord, but let all flesh, let everyone on earth bless your holy name forever and ever. That is a missionary prayer. David knew that statement I just made, the very last statement of verse 20, he knew that everyone who rebels against God, who doesn't submit themselves to God's authority, will face destruction. And we should live with the same realization. And that should lead us to pray for the gospel's advance in our community, in our country, in our world. See, the thing, when we are praising the Lord, when, we're, when our hearts are rightly tuned to our sovereign and good God, 
What should bother us more than anything is that there are billions of people who can't see the good, great, sovereign. There are billions of people who do not want his rule. This should pain our hearts that people are blind to our king. As long as each of us has life, each of us should pray, God, I want everyone on earth to bless your holy, unique name forever and ever. Psalm 145 gives us the kind of adjustment that we need. And it is wonderfully comprehensive. I haven't brought this point out to this point, but uh, it's actually got 22 lines in it. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and it appears to be an acrostic. David wrote five of the eight acrostic psalms. It's like the A to Z of praise. And it's not only A to Z, but it's also comprehensive in its terms. Terms like every and all appear like maybe 20 times in the psalm. And when you step back from the song as a whole, you say something like, everything that exists is made by God. And everything that exists experiences God's goodness. Even just in the fact that it's breathing, it's living. Everything that exists should thank God. At one point, the psalm says, all the saints should bless God. Everyone who's been reconciled to God through Jesus should praise God. And we should praise him every day, in every generation, forever. And if you missed it, and ever. Psalm 145, God, help us. I pray that you would be glorified in my life day by day. Oh God, I pray that you would be glorified among your saints in your church. I pray that you would be glorified in the gospel's advance throughout the world. I pray that you would be glorified when you come to reign on this planet as king of all kings. God, I pray that you would be glorified forever. In Jesus' name, and for our good, I pray. Amen.